very thankful to be with you here at uh, Zion's Rest. Certainly appreciate the invitation. And uh, in occasions like this, I know I can speak for most ministers, we're reminded that we're earthen vessels. And uh, <clears throat> I will say the handful of times that I felt like I've actually had a little bit of liberty to preach, I doubt that that had much to do with me. I believe it had to do with the quantity and the fervency of the prayers that went into the service. I, I honestly believe that. And, uh, and if uh, the Lord blesses this, us this, uh, this meeting, it will certainly be of the Lord, and we hope to uh, glean some things from His Word. You can be turning to 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21. And also, by way of prayer, I'd also, uh, it's in a selfish way, uh, ask that uh, you hope that my voice holds out. I had laryngitis last week, and I've progressed pretty well for uh, to have decent uh, vocal ability right now. <laughs> but that's before preaching uh, at least maybe three times this weekend. So hopefully, I won't be <laughs> totally totally shot by Sunday. So uh, in Second Kings chapter twenty-one, we'd like to look at the life of King Manasseh. And this is during a time period in, in Judah. And uh, since I'm speaking to a Sunday morning crowd, I'm going to believe that you know about the divided kingdom when the kingdom split after the days of Solomon and his son Rehoboam. And you have the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of, of Judah and the southern tribes of Judah go through this constant fluctuation, this constant uh, flow of, of good things, good kings and revival. And then they just go back into the low, low ebb of, of uh, idolatry and sinfulness. But the uh, northern uh, tribes of Israel, uh, they stayed in a constant low, low ebb. <laughs> they uh, never had any good kings. The Holy Spirit... Uh, usually um, leaves leaves us not up to doubt about the legacy of kings. They were either a good king or an evil king, and the northern tribes only had evil kings, and the tribes of Judah had, had good kings. And, and uh, before we make our way to Manasseh, they had Uzziah, who was a very good and godly king. He made some mistakes at the end of his life, but a very good and godly king. And then you had... Ahaz, who just descended them back into idolatry and very sinful practices. And you have the revival of Hezekiah. So, so you, you're seeing this, this fluctuation here. And you have a, a great revival in Hezekiah's day. But right in the aftermath of Hezekiah's revival, Manasseh becomes king. In 2 Kings chapter 21, and Manasseh was... 12 years old when he began to reign and reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And in verse 2, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. He built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. He built altars for all the host of heaven in two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through the fire and observed 
times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards and brought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image of the grove which he had made in the house of the Lord, which he said to Solomon, to David and to his and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel to move any more out of the land which I gave to their fathers, only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them, according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. So Manasseh actually had to put a lot of work into destroying all of the positive things that Hezekiah had done. Hezekiah had, had instituted a, a very fervent revival during his day, and Manasseh simply just tears down almost everything that Hezekiah had done, all the positive things that he did in the, in the midst of his rule, and he set up the high places which Hezekiah's father has destroyed. He reared up altars for Baal and made a grove. He built altars in the house of the Lord, the, the, the place that was designated for the worship of God. He took those altars out and set up altars for false gods to Baal. He set up altars in, for all the host of heaven in two of the courts of the house of the Lord. And that idolatry and false worship is is an abomination to the Lord and it's, and it's very sinful. But in verse 6, he made his son to pass through the fire and observe times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. And he wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. I can't, I can't fathom the type of deception that someone must be under to offer the life of any innocent child, but especially the, the life of your own child to a false God. I mean, what type of deception and just, just mental confusion? And we're not even talking in a spiritual level, just naturally. How could you get so confused to think that God would be honored by you sacrificing the fruit of your womb? And he did that, but he didn't just do it with his children. He did it with many innocent children in Judah. And the Lord, as he consistently did during these times of wickedness and idolatry, the Lord never leaves his disobedient children in ignorance. There's gonna, there might come a time when you are, if you were perpetually disobedient, that the Lord might just say, all right, now I'm going to just let you reap fully what you've sown. But he will not leave you in total ignorance. And the Lord always sent prophets. He, they always sent prophets to tell them what they were doing wrong. And say, repent, repent, because judgment's coming. And that's what he did with Manasseh. The Lord spake in verse 10 by the servants of the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, the king of Judah, had done these abominations and had done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah... Also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe 
Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish and wipeth it and turneth it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done that which was evil in my sight. And have provoked me to anger since the day that their fathers came forth out of Egypt even unto this day. But they didn't hearken to those prophets. They didn't hearken to the Lord admonishing them to repent of their wickedness. And in summary of, of Manasseh's reign here in 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. And beside his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin, and doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin that he sinned, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah and Manasseh, slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son reigned in his stead. He made his own sons and daughters from the Second Chronicles 33 reference to pass through the fire, but he offered... Much innocent blood, innocent babies and childrens to these false gods. So much that it is described by the Holy Spirit that he shed innocent blood till he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Almost like that there's a stream of blood flowing all throughout the, the entire length of the city. Such atrocities that he committed here and then in verse 17 you always have this summary obituary to a certain degree after a king passes away in these kingdom books and in our obituaries we especially there in the first paragraph we have kind of uh, one or two sentences that are gonna gonna summarize what this person's life's about you know uh, this person loved church. He loved the Lord. He pastored in the ministry. He was a deacon at a church. Or it could be in a more secular sense. He loved to hunt. He loved Alabama football. And whatever that one-line obituary is, that, that's their legacy, right? To a certain degree. And what was Manasseh's legacy? What's the, what's the Holy Spirit's one-line tag <laughs> for the life of Manasseh? In verse seven, 17... All that he did and all his sin that he sinned. His, his legacy was sin. His legacy was shedding innocent blood from one end of Jerusalem to the other. What a horrible depiction of a leader of God's people. But what a godless reprobate that busted hell wide open, right? I'm happy to tell you about the rest of the story tonight, uh, this morning rather. In Second Chronicles 23, 2 Chronicles 23, this is an example, the story of Manasseh, of the necessity for you to read all of Scripture Amen. and to compare Scripture with Scripture. Amen. Because if all we know about Manasseh is the account from 2 Kings chapter 21. We just have no positive information or indication about him at all. Nothing. I, all, all we have is all the sin that he sinned. 
And we have more information that's given to us here in Second Chronicles chapter three, 33. That, as Paul Harvey would say, gives us the rest of the story. And I believe one of the most amazing depictions of the grace and the love of God toward unworthy sinners in all of Scripture. Amen. King Manasseh. So in Second Chronicles chapter tw- uh, 33, verses 1 to 10 read exactly like the first 17 verses there in Second Kings chapter 21. And all, all it talks about is the wickedness that he performed and the idolatry and him offering false uh, sacrifices, but offering innocent children to the uh, worship of, of false gods. And after those uh, first 10 verses that essentially just highlight the exact same things that we've already read, in verse 11... It says, Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. So the Babylonians come in, and in the midst of that conflict, he's actually taken captive. And he's taken back to Babylon. And in the midst of that, it says that they put Manasseh among the thorns. And that gives the reference of of someone almost piercing his nose like they would a a pig, really, with just putting that that hook in their nose. And that's, that's pretty gruesome. I mean, that's pretty rough. And it says in verse 12, as he was in this Babylonian... Uh, jail and captivity. It says, when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now, what we're going to see here is Manasseh's repentance and and Manasseh's change in, in his actions and in his heart. And I'll go ahead and just give you my summary of this. Uh, and uh, I believe that he exhibits the fruit of repentance to such a degree that I, at least in my uh, courtroom of justification by works, he, he exhibits enough fruits meet for repentance that it is uh, exhibiting the evidence of him being born again of the Spirit of God. Okay? Now, with that being the case, I do believe that is the case with, with Manasseh, but there are plenty of people that when they get in, in difficulty... When they get in affliction, when they have their nose pierced and they're in very bad prison conditions, they're going to make a lot of promises to the Lord. They're going to, they're, there's people who uh, might utter words that from the, an, an external sense might sound like a prayer in the midst of difficulty when you're having a bad time, but the actions might not follow that would exhibit a true repentance by that person. Because what they're attempting to do, and we see examples of this all throughout Scripture as well, that our our nature is to try to alleviate the suffering that we're in, right? And if we want to have an avenue to be able to alleviate that suffering, and, and there's plenty of people that... Might not even be touched by the Spirit of God in their heart, but they're going to make some utterance to some higher being when they're in difficulty just to make their circumstances go a little bit better. So I don't want to discount the fact that 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 could occur. And people make deathbed promises all the time. But when they get better, they don't certainly don't honor those deathbed promises. 
But the, I don't believe that that's what we see exhibited by Manasseh. Amen. Not him just trying to avoid the pain and the difficulty that he's dealing with here in Babylon. It says that he was in affliction in verse 12. And I think the Holy Spirit also lets us know uh, this very importantly in verse 12. He besought the Lord, his God, Amen. his God. And humbled himself, humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him and was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem and his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. You know, this is a, a man that had grew up. He, he had watched the revival under Hezekiah. And... I think also he had seen the effects of the prayer that his father prayed when the Lord said, get your house in order. You're about to die. And he turned to the wall and prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord added 15 years to his life. Manasseh knew about that. And I think in the midst of his affliction, now the time of his new birth, in my opinion, is not, irre is not relevant to this. But I believe it was definitely prior to when he prayed this prayer. The evidence can't, I believe that's what the evidence supports. Now, how, how much before? It's not relevant to the discussion. But Hezekiah, he had seen the prayer that his father had prayed unto the Lord. And he knew that there was an avenue of help. By his personal experience, but also by, I believe, by that internal conviction that he humbled himself and he prayed in the midst of his affliction to the Lord, just like he had seen his father do. And he said that it, that it humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He'd heard Hezekiah talk about this God, but, I, but this is part of the reality that maybe some of you have experienced as well, that when the God of your father's becomes your God. Amen. That the God that you've heard about your entire life, it actually becomes personal and real and authentic to you individually. Because he knew about Jehovah God, but he didn't know Jehovah God as his God, like the Holy Spirit tells us in verse 12. And he prayed unto him, he prayed unto God. And he says at the end there in verse 13, Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Now, I don't think that's just him denoting, yes, yes, there's a God in heaven, acknowledging the fact that there's a, a sovereign deity. No, he, he acknowledged the fact that the Lord, he is his God. Now, in verse 14, after this, he built a wall without the city of David. Verse 15, he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he built in the in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. He repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed their own peace and offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. No, excuse me. Nevertheless, the people did sacrifice in the high places yet unto the Lord, their God only. So he didn't just pray this prayer when he was in difficulty and affliction in Babylon, and then when things got better, well, let's just get back to business as usual. He implemented some changes that were evidence of his repentance 
sincere repentance before a holy God. And he purged out all of these strange gods and idols that he had placed there in the temple. Certainly he ceased from offering the innocent children and, and, and his own children in uh, false worship to, to Molech. And what began this, this um, purging out and, and repentance is, is this prayer of Manasseh. And this prayer of Manasseh is referenced quite a few different times. We've already seen him praying the prayer. And then in, in verse 18, it's referenced again, the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto God and the words of the seers that he spake to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel. They are written in the book of the kings of, of Israel. And his prayer also, and how God was entreated of him and all his sin and his trespass and the places wherein he built the high places and set up groves and grain that images <coughs> before he was humbled. And behold, they are written in the sayings of the seers. And Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his own house and Ammon his son reigned in his stead. So this prayer is referenced multiple times in this discourse, but it's interesting that we're not actually told the prayer. And not only is it referenced, but we're told that somebody wrote it down. <laughs> it's written in the book of the saying of the seers. It's written in the, the book of the kings of Israel. Somebody wrote down this prayer. But the Holy Spirit didn't inspire this prayer for us, which is interesting. Because many of our friends and other Christian denominations place a lot of emphasis on the sinner's prayer, right? A pre-crafted and, and uh, standard prayer that you need to pray this prayer and you'll be saved to heaven. And if there was any example in Scripture about someone who was just living a very ungodly life and he made a decision to change his course of action and to pray a prayer and to get saved, would, it, would Manasseh not be exhibit A of the, the sinner's prayer that would get you to heaven? If that was the case, it seems to me that he would be exhibit A of that. And we know that that language of the sinner's prayer is not in Scripture, but don't you think that if that was necessary, that we would have had a word-for-word dictation of what prayer Manasseh prayed <laughs> that got him from, from the fast track to the, to the lake of fire to, to now in heaven. <laughs> Don't you think that the Holy Spirit would have given us that exact prayer that, that we needed to pray to get saved to heaven? And, and clearly the Holy Spirit's told us, and somebody wrote it down, <laughs> but the Holy Spirit didn't preserve it for us. Now, he certainly is an example of, of a, sinner's, a sinner's prayer that shows a sincere repentance and conviction over his sin. But we know that the, the sinner's prayer does, has no bearing on our, on our eternal life. But at the same time, it is very appropriate and it's very necessary for you as a sinner to pray those prayers of repentance. Okay? And I think the true biblical example of the sinner's prayer is not written on a tract somewhere. It's written in Luke chapter 18. And it was prayed by a 
sin-sick and convicted publican who saw himself to be a sinner, okay? Luke chapter 18, there's two men that went up to the temple to pray. You know the story, one of them being a Pharisee. And then in verse 13, the other man, the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, Jesus didn't come into the world to bring the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I mean, if there is an action that you can perform that will get you to heaven, there was no need for God to send His only begotten Son to come into this world and die for your sins. If your actions and your works are sufficient to get you to heaven, you don't need the blood of Christ to ratify those those righteous actions. But He didn't call to, come to call the righteous to repentance. If you're righteous, you don't need repentance, right? If you're truly righteous. Now, we're not talking about a man just being a good man and being a, a righteous man. I mean, we're talking about... God righteousness. I mean, we're talking about God's holiness righteous. If, if, you're, if you're righteous in that way, you don't have to be called to repentance. <laughs> There's no need for repentance. But that's not who Jesus came to save or to call to repentance. He came to save sinners. That's what Paul said in, I believe, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I in chief. You know, that's a good message. I know the entire world doesn't like the doctrine of total depravity, but when the Holy Spirit has allowed you to look into the mirror of God's Word and to see yourself accurately for the wretched sinners that we are, I'll tell you, it's good news that Jesus came into the world to, to save sinners. When you see yourself as a sinner, <laughs> when you see yourself as righteous, well, you know, I'm thankful the Lord came and died and everything, but, you know, I'm, I've really got it all together pretty good. And uh, I'm a pretty good guy. And the Lord definitely wants more good guys like me in heaven. When you see yourself accurately, <laughs> and the Holy Spirit allows you, just like this publican. You know, this publican, I tell you, he, he was burdened by his sin. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. And, and in, in Acts chapter 15, the apostles were talking about the, the, the uh, distinction of, of circumcision and obedience to the law. And they said, why, why are you placing a yoke upon the neck of the disciples that neither you nor your fathers were able to bear? What's that yoke going to do? I tell you, it's going to make you look at the ground 24-7. It's going to have you burdened down. And that's how that publican felt. He felt to be a sinner, and he knew his only hope was the mercy of God. Mercy, God's mercy of not giving him what he knew he did deserve. Okay? Now, did this sinner's prayer, this publican here at the temple, did that have any effect on his eternal state or destination? It did not. That's not what got him saved, but I'll tell you, that publican went home feeling saved. In verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That's not when he got justified before God, but that's when he went home feeling justified before God. That's what justification by faith is all about. At the beginning of 
there in Romans chapter 5, after he highlights justification by faith in the life of Abraham, he says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have, by faith we have peace with God. God's already at peace with you through the work of Jesus Christ. But how do you feel to be at peace with God? Amen. God's already justified you by the work of Christ, but do you feel to be justified? You've been saved, but do you feel saved? This publican went home feeling saved. That's the effect, the proper effect of the sinner's prayer. And that is how Manasseh felt too, <laughs> after he prayed that prayer. You know, I think the Apostle Paul felt, felt this when, when uh, he had uh, the, the, literally the, the voice of the Son of God speak to him on the road to Damascus there in Acts chapter 9. But have you ever thought about how he felt for three days, blind, not eating anything before Ananias showed up and to tell him your sins are forgiven? Oh, man, the internal conviction. I, boy, I was publican. Boy, he was having a tough time. But I can only imagine how, they, how the Apostle Paul felt for three days with having no sight and only the conviction of the Holy Spirit down in his heart. Well, how, how excited do you think he was when Ananias showed up and said, Thy sins are forgiven thee. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, he went, he went, I don't know if he necessarily went to another house. He may have just stayed in the same house, but he went down to his house justified. <laughs> he went, he felt saved. And Manasseh, after he exhibited that, that prayer, that, uh, that prayer of repentance, I believe he felt that he felt that remission of sins. You know, that's the kind of the language we have in, in the Acts of the Apostles, right? That some people uh, hone in on a little bit too much, and they say, "If you believe, you will feel the, you will have the remission of sins." And that's not when your sins are remitted before God, but that's when you feel that remission of sins. That's when you feel to be saved, right? And certainly Manasseh felt that as well. Now. Even though, and this is such an important point, God's, God's long-suffering, God's merciful. Praise, praise the Lord, because otherwise He would have never saved anybody. But even though God is merciful, we see this with King David and his mistake with, with Bathsheba. The Lord told him, look, you're not going to die, but the sword is never going to depart from your house because of what you did. And when it came time... For the Lord to just drop the final hammer on the nation of Judah. One of the specific things that it says was because of all of the innocent blood that Manasseh shed. It's why this judgment's coming upon Judah. Now, now, the Lord forgave Manasseh. And I feel confident by what I see in scripture that he's in heaven. But that does not discount all of the calamity and negative effects that went upon multitudes of other people because of his sin. The Lord forgave him and the Lord blessed them for a time of revival during, at the end of his life, which his son promptly tore down, just like he did with Hezekiah before Josiah came along. <clears throat> but even though the Lord is gracious and forgiving just like he said with David, look, 
you know, David, when Nathan came to him, he declared himself, this man is worthy of death of what he has done when he gave that parable of the, the rich man and poor man and the ewe lamb. He said, this man's worthy of death. And then Nathan said, but, but you're not going to die. The Lord's not going to kill you. You've, you've declared that you are worthy of that, but the Lord's not going to kill you. But he said, because of this, the sword's not going to depart from your house. I'll tell you, the, sin is such a pervasive and corrupting thing in our life. Amen. And, and I'm thankful that the Lord is gracious to forgive us when we mess up. But that does not discount all of the cascading ripple effects that the Lord will not be mocked and he will not look over because of our, because of our sin. Now, I think one of the most important lessons for us to learn, look at Manasseh and learn is that <clears throat> we might view that and Manasseh and all of the sin that he sinned and say, man, that's just, that's just too much grace. The, the Lord really shouldn't have people like that in heaven. I mean, the people that have done things like that, that have shed innocent blood, that have killed babies, that have set up false worship, you know, we, we know that God's grace is good for good folks down in the Bible Belt, but, I mean, we just don't know. I don't know how comfortable I am <laughs> with people who have done things that Manasseh has done being in heaven. I tell you, the Lord didn't just come to die for white-collar misdemeanor sins. He came to die for egregious felonies, people who have committed murder, people who have have offered their 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 children, people who have have committed in a, in a modern uh, application who have consented to the abortion of their children, people who have performed those actions, egregious actions that we would look at and say, man, that's, that's a sin that's worthy of death. Well, every sin is worthy of death. And it's so... Sometimes I think it's so easy for us to look at people that have committed such, such egregious sin. Now, now I, I want to make sure you understand me. Okay, there, there, there has to be repentance in the church. And Manasseh exhibits that, okay? He exhibits a change of actions. Not just a contrition over, I've made bad decisions and now I'm reaping the effect of my bad decisions and I really would wish the consequences of my mistakes would, would stop. That's not what he's saying. This is a true, sincere repentance and change of action. And I hope you understand that is who the church is for. The church is not good, is, is not for just the good old folks who were raised in church. It is for the Manassas. It is for the people that are, and, and I'll tell you, that's who, that's who needs the gospel the most. The, because they feel to be those publicans. They feel to be a sinner. And they know, boy, if it's up to me, man, I, I know where I'm going. The only hope that I have is the mercy of God, like that publican felt. That's who needs the gospel the most. But instead, the only people we invite to church are our really close, white-collar, middle-class Anglo-Saxon white people. I'll tell you, it's people that have been in prison. It's people that have committed 
felonies according to the state of Alabama. <laughs> it's people that are bad sinners in our mind. Amen. That's who the gospel's for. Amen. In First Corinthians chapter six. And in verse 9, Know ye not that unrighteousness shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Amen, Paul. We don't need those kind of people in church. That's right. Keep them out. <laughs> well, you better keep reading. That's right. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But ye are washed. <laughs> ye are sanctified. And ye are justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know. Jesus Christ. Made us righteous. His, his righteousness was imputed. To us. And I'll tell you. That applies to every type of sin. Okay. The fornicator, the idolater, the adulterer, all of those people, those they didn't get a lesser degree of imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They are washed, they are sanctified, they are justified. You know, our one of our hymns, Beneath the Sacred Throne of God, I saw a river rise. The streams were peace and pardoning blood descending through the skies. And one of those lines in there, and that song says, um, I knew I was going to go blank on this, <laughs> uh, that, that uh, we're, we're free to take away a Mary's or Manasseh's stains or sins more vile than they. I'll tell you, Manasseh, his, his sins are pretty vile. Uh the Lord had to cast seven devils out of Mary. But the, those are the people that we would say, eh, you know. Yeah, the Lord had to work a little bit harder <laughs> to save them from their sins on the cross. You know, the blood and the grace of God is enough to cover the sins of Mary and Manasseh and sins more vile than they. Praise God for grace, right? Praise God for the mercy and the grace of God. Because without it, we were lost, ruined sinners. And by it, we've been saved by grace. Thank you.